that you would move in our midst. Yes, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we began a series of five stories or pericopes that are related to Jesus' birth, and each pericope has a threat. That threat is evaded when an angel delivers a message in a dream, and each pericope has some fulfillment of prophecy within it, each one of these five. The only exception is that there is no angelic visitor when Herod commits an atrocity. Matthew's not recording these five stories merely to narrate the circumstances that surrounded Jesus' birth. Matthew, instead, is looking to address a specific problem. Yes, it's good to know those circumstances, but he's really after this one problem. You see, on the streets of, of Galilee and Judea, Jesus was known as Jesus of Nazareth. That's sort of his, his common name, Jesus of Nazareth. And throughout the Gospels, the question is raised numerous times, how can the Messiah come from Nazareth? And last week I quoted uh, Nathaniel, and he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The the Messiah was not supposed to come from, from Galilee, let alone Nazareth. He was supposed to come from Judah, from Judea. More specifically, he was supposed to come from Bethlehem. So a Galilean Messiah would have been a major stumbling block for those first century Jews. Uh, Commentator R.T. France writes this, Jews from Judea would certainly have discriminated against Jews from Galilee. Even an impeccably Jewish Galilean in first century Jerusalem was not among his own people. He was as much a foreigner as an Irishman in London or a Texan in New York. His accent would immediately mark him out as not one of us, and all the communal prejudice of the supposedly superior culture of the capital city would stand against his claim to be heard, even as a prophet, let alone the Messiah, a title which, as everyone knows, belongs to Judea. So if we don't understand this prejudice that existed, we miss a primary tension within the Gospel of Matthew. This is the story of Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus of Bethlehem. And nonetheless, Matthew is going to show us how the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, has indeed come from Bethlehem. Even more, though, bigger, deeper, more profound. Matthew is using the question of Jesus' origins to sound his greatest theme, that Jesus is the Messiah to which all Scripture has been pointing. He is the fulfillment of history. He is the Davidic king over all kings. And such interweaving of amazing themes reminds us that Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, and he assumed that his original readers would have a profound understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures. So remember that the Bible was not written for us I'm sorry, it was, it was written for us, but it was not written to us. So we need to go digging to better understand how the original readers of Matthew's gospel would have understood it, and we're going to go digging today. And it's a good thing, because I think we're all very familiar with Matthew chapter 2, just because of the Christmas season, but we might approach it today a little bit differently. 
I want to explore the historical context that surrounds Jesus' first years. And then I want to show you what Matthew's doing, that Jesus is the fulfillment not just of prophecy, but of all Scripture, and not just of all Scripture, but of all Israel's history. I've preached on this passage twice already since I've been pastoring here at Emmanuel, specifically Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Guess when I did that? Around Christmas time. So it's not... I'm not going to spend a lot of time diving into that first section. I've already done it twice. We're kind of going to move over that quickly with a light treatment. And I also enjoy the fact that we can, though Christmas is sort of close, I, I enjoy that we can look at this passage without the cords of Christmas sort of tying us down. All right, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. In our last sermon series, we studied the life of David, Israel's greatest king, and long before David rose to prominence and became the king, he was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, a relatively small town about six miles southwest, south-southwest of Jerusalem, and scholars estimate that at the time of Jesus' early years, at the time of his birth, there were no more than a thousand people living in Bethlehem and the surrounding villages, which is an important detail for us later on. And Matthew does nothing to tell us how Jesus got to Bethlehem, only that he was born there. Luke informs us how Jesus got to Bethlehem, and we learned there that Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth, and they were forced to travel to Bethlehem for a census, and on the night that they arrive in Bethlehem, that very night, Jesus is born. And Matthew just says, Jesus, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But some time had transpired since that night, perhaps two years, as the text indicates. It was enough time for the wise men, or in the Greek, magi, it was enough for the magi to travel all the way to Bethlehem from, very likely, Babylon. So they, they crossed that fertile crescent coming from Babylon and Mesopotamia all the way to Jerusalem. And, and as the Magi were watching their Babylonian skies, they saw something that indicated to them that the king had been born in the West. Some great king, some magnificent king, the king of the Jews... So these magi, they were, they were magicians, they were keepers of pagan wisdom, which is why they're often called wise men. They held pagan wisdom. And most importantly for our passage, they were astrologers. So they would watch the skies and then look for some sort of meaning in the stars or in the planetary alignments that could apply to our lives, astrology. And as such, these magi would not be welcomed by Jews, 
Right? The Old Testament, the law, condemns this kind of wisdom. So the Magi would have been seen as vile Gentiles dabbling with the demonic from a Jewish perspective. When the Magi show up in Jerusalem and they're asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? It's no wonder that there is no, hopeful, no hopefulness, no acceptance. Right? Jerusalem very likely is blinded by their prejudice against these unclean Gentiles who come here, these foreigners come here, Claim to have special knowledge about our Messiah? Yeah, right. So instead of joy, Jerusalem is upset, distressed, annoyed. You see, the text says Jerusalem was troubled. From the moment that the Messiah is born to the moment that he is executed at Golgotha, Jerusalem is the center of hostility towards Jesus. Eventually, the people of Jerusalem unhesitatingly accept responsibility for the death of Jesus as Pontius Pilate has him on trial. And there, he's asking, do you want Jesus or do you want Barabbas? And they say, Jesus. And then Pilate says, his blood be on your hands. And then they respond, Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem respond with, his blood be on us and on our children. And so Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified. The Messiah, their Messiah. That should be a warning to us. That we're not blinded by prejudice. So that we cannot see the work of God in people that we think might might not be working in. No. God shows no favoritism. Neither should we. Let's never let our prejudices blind us. Well, however troubled Jerusalem was, Herod, King Herod, was absolutely unnerved. Herod the Great. Let me introduce this fine fellow. Herod the Great was also a Gentile. In 40 BC, the Romans had appointed him to be king of Judea. So he, and actually, king of, of Palestine, so Judea, Samaria, Galilee. So he's king over all of this area, and, and when he's appointed king, like he has no rights to this throne, he's just appointed it by the Romans because he, I guess he looked like a promising candidate. So when he is appointed king, in, the, in an effort to curry favor with the Jews, he engages in all kinds of these massive building projects that were, some were well received. One of them was he, he expanded the temple compound. He made it much more magnificent than it was. He really did a wonderful job with his temple building, and the Jews appreciated that, but despite his efforts, ultimately, the Jews despised Herod. First of all, he was a Gentile, and he was a a puppet for the Romans, but even worse, he was a brutal tyrant. He was cruel, and he was unafraid to shed blood. And even in Rome, Herod had garnered a reputation for being cruel in Rome. Like if the Romans think you're cruel, that's a special kind of brutality. So as tyrants go, Herod was deeply insecure. And and I'm going to elaborate on this later, but mostly Herod feared anyone 
who might have a claim to the throne. Anyone who could be seen as a threat, he feared them. And so when verse 3 tells us that Herod was troubled because somebody's announcing a king of the Jews, you can bet trouble was brewing. Now, though he's a pagan, an outsider, notice how Herod immediately recognizes that these magi are talking about the Messiah. They don't say that. They just say king of the Jews. Well, he's king of the Jews, but somehow he knows that these magi are referring to the Messiah. And that's why he summons, essentially, the Jewish Sanhedrin. And they come, and and he wants to learn from them, where can the Messiah be born? He knows that they're talking about the Messiah, but he doesn't know where the Messiah is going to be born, where he's going to be coming from. And so he gets the Sanhedrin to quote Scripture, and the Sanhedrin quotes for him a mashup of Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2. That message is clear. That prophetic quotation is clear. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus, the shepherd king of Israel, has been born in Bethlehem. See what Matthew's doing here. Jesus of Nazareth has been born in Bethlehem. Jesus of Nazareth is a son of Judah. By divine orchestration, Jesus of Nazareth has been brought to Bethlehem in fulfillment of Scripture. Then, verse 7 says, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Feigning devotion, Herod sends the Magi to find this baby king. He's trying to trick the wise men, which is a little ironic because he's going to become upset when he's the one who's tricked. And as the Magi go, the star that they had followed all the way from Babylon, presumably, it now reappears. Now, it's impossible to know what they followed, and and a lot of things have been suggested. A planetary alignment, a comet, a supernova, and there are some dates around the time of Jesus' birth where that is possible, but none of those things can go before you and then rest upon a specific house. So maybe it was an angel None of us know, and it's really not that important. Whatever it was, when it happens, when the Magi see it, they become, how exactly does it say it? It, They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. That's redundant to make a point. Like, they are ecstatic. They're bursting with joy. I imagine that right there when like they step outside of Herod's palace maybe and they see this thing or maybe it's when it rests over some obscure house in Bethlehem and they just worship. Now being magi, I'm not sure who they might be worshiping, but they're filled with joy. 
what? Uh, and they go into the house. There's Mary, there's the baby, and they, they bow down before this king. And I think it's quite a wonder that these pagan, unclean Gentiles are the very first in Matthew's gospel to honor him, to honor Jesus as Messiah. A lot of critics will say that the, this whole scene never happened, the Magi, like this is all just preposterous and made up, but with those prejudices and the Jewish culture against the Magi, why on earth would Matthew put that into the gospel unless it was real? And in that house, while these Gentiles are prostrate before a baby, notice that there are no Jewish religious leaders there. Right? They had heard that the Jewish king was born, and these strange visitors have come to see him. But perhaps because of their prejudices, they don't want to be seen with the Magi, so they didn't go. I think Matthew's making a strong point. Matthew wants us to see the Gentiles are the first to recognize Jesus as, as Messiah, and it's a hint now. We're getting a hint now that Jesus is not just king of the Jews. He's the king of all kings. It's one reason why tradition has arisen that these were three kings. Because Jesus is king of all kings. Then they lay incredibly valuable treasures at the feet of the child. And whether the Magi knew it or not, each gift powerfully symbolized Jesus' life, his future. They give him gold because gold is fit for a king, and they give him frankincense, which is an incense that the priests would use. And then they give him myrrh, an oil very often used for burial. Jesus, our king, our great high priest, he would die in our place. And these magi have no idea, probably, what it is they're symbolizing with their gifts. So they give their gifts. Presumably they leave, find lodging, I guess, go to sleep. And then they have a dream. And in this dream, Herod's malicious intentions are betrayed by an angel. An angel visits them in their dream. Could it be the same angel that led them all the way there? I don't know. And tells them to go home another way. And so they do. They somehow skirt Jerusalem. They leave Judea. They go back into the east. And God had just orchestrated this brief window of time now for his son to escape. For this tiny family in Bethlehem to escape the wrath of a tyrannical king. Look at verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son So again, for a second time now, Herod's malicious intentions are betrayed by an angel in a dream. 
Joseph is to take his family and flee to Egypt, and they're going to stay there in Egypt until God sends word. And see how verse 14 says that this little family departed at night. So the indication is that Joseph had his dream, woke up, gathered his family and his stuff, and they, they went immediately, without hesitation, urgently taking flight. And they escaped Bethlehem under the cover of night, ready to embark on over a 150-mile-long journey. Like, can you imagine that? you got 150 miles of walking in front of you, and you just, in the middle of the night, split. Joseph is certainly marked by profound obedience to God, isn't he? Egypt, during this time, had a significant Jewish population. Estimates have as many as one million Jews living in Alexandria of Egypt at that time. So it would, it's going to be easy for Joseph and Mary and, and baby Jesus to go there and sort of disappear into the crowd it could go on living as, as faithful Jews. I, I was even reading in one commentary that in Alexandria at that time, they sort of built a mock temple so that the Jews there could do their temple rites in Alexandria. I'm not saying that was right, but they did it. But in going to Egypt, Joseph and Mary and Jesus, they're participating in a long Jewish tradition. Remember when famine rose in the promised land and Abraham fled to Egypt? And then his grandson, Jacob, did the same thing. When the Babylonians invaded, and then later the Greeks, and later the Romans, more and more Jews fled to Egypt. Which is why there's a million of them or so in Alexandria. So Jesus is taking up or being given Israel's history by fleeing to Egypt to escape disaster. And all this was done, Matthew says, in fulfillment of Scripture. Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1. He quotes half of the verse. I'll read the whole verse. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. In numerous places throughout the Old Testament, God refers to the nation of Israel as his son. Israel is his son. And this quote relates to how God brought Israel out of Egypt during the Exodus. Right? So that's what Hosea is really talking about. When God brought, Egypt, uh, God brought Israel out of Egypt during the Exodus. So there's nothing that's messianic about that, not overtly, not on the face of it. So you've got to ask the question, how then can Matthew apply Hosea 11.1 to Jesus? Like, is he stretching it? Is he reaching? Instead of showing a messianic prophecy and then how Jesus fulfilled it, like a direct correlation, Matthew's applying a different form of prophetic fulfillment here. He is showing us that Jesus is the Messiah to which all Scripture has been pointing. Right? Everything is pointing to Jesus, not just the prophets. All Scripture, even all of Israel's history, has been pointing to this Christ child. So when Jesus went to Egypt to escape disaster, he's being given Israel's history. When God calls him to leave Egypt, he's being given Israel's history. And we're going to see this again and again in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus reliving Israel's history. 
It's not going to happen with an exact one-to-one correspondence, but there is so much association that it's unmistakable, which is how typology works in the Bible. Right? This is important for understanding the Bible. This is how typology works. It's not exactly the same, but the associations are unmistakable. Here's a big clear one for you. Just as the Passover lamb is a picture of Jesus, it's not exactly the same, but the association is unmistakable, right? For is not Jesus worthy of all power and wealth and wisdom and honor and glory and blessing because he is the lamb who was slain? He is. Israel was the type, the shadow. Jesus is the fullness. Jesus is both the fulfillment of Israel and he is the new Israel. Matthew's going to drive that point home as he takes us through his gospel. Jesus is the new Israel. Just as God called Israel out of Egypt, so will the Father call the Son out of Egypt. Scripture finds its fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. Not only is Jesus the new Israel, he's also the new Moses. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in that, and in all the region. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Hmm. As I said, Bethlehem's only six miles from Jerusalem, so it wouldn't take long until Herod realized that the Magi weren't coming back. It only should have been a day or two. And when he realizes that, when he realizes that he's the one who's been tricked, He flies off the handle into a rage. Parentheses. Again, the critics. We love the critics. We do. They help us to really think through things. And there are a lot of critics who say there is absolutely no historical evidence for this slaughter in Bethlehem. We don't find it anywhere recorded except right here in Matthew. So this, again, is probably a made-up story. Well, I think that that is likely, they don't really understand Herod's history. Herod had a reputation for brutality and cruelty, right? And it grew even more bloody in his final, war, in his final years to the point of, of insanity. So he's so obsessed with defending his throne that he killed the two nobles who were ruling before him. And then he killed their whole families, And then he killed their supporters. And then he killed his brother-in-law. And then he killed his mother-in-law. And then he killed his wife. And then he killed his three oldest sons. When he discovered a a plot to assassinate him, he had those ten conspirators killed with their entire families. And then there are the multiple accounts of Herod slaughtering prominent citizens in the area that he ruled in simply because he thought they could be a a threat to him. And he killed their families too. Then most ridiculous of all, certainly, 
the command of an insane man. He ordered that when he died, one member of every noble family would be executed so that they could ensure the mourning in Judea was authentic. Gladly after he died, nobody was foolish enough to carry out that order. But the, Her- the, the accounts of Herod's brutality are so numerous that it's no wonder the slaughter of Bethlehem was overlooked by historians of that day. Like it was a, a, a relatively small atrocity compared to these much more public, much larger in terms of death atrocities that he was perpetrating. I told you before that Bethlehem was a, a city or a village of about a thousand people with its surrounding areas. Statistically, the most that such a population could have produced of of male boys two years old and under was about 20. So at most, 20 babies were killed. A terrible atrocity, but compared to some of these other ones that Herod was doing, maybe not as bad. And so it's overshadowed. It's overshadowed everywhere except in the Gospel of Matthew. Let's move that parentheses aside. So the unfolding drama that's surrounding Jesus' birth. Different characters are being cast in different roles, and Herod here is being cast in a Pharaoh-type role. He's a, a type of Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh from Exodus? In Exodus chapter 1, he issues a command that all Israel babies, males, be cast into the Nile, about two years old and younger. And just as God, as God had protected Moses from Pharaoh, from Pharaoh's atrocity, so did God protect Jesus from a king, king bent on infanticide. So Herod is being cast as a Pharaoh and Jesus being cast as a Moses. Matthew then quotes Jeremiah 31.15. In Jeremiah, in this passage, in in that verse he quotes, Rachel is a symbol, like she symbolizes the mother of Israel, crying for her sons. In Ramah, the Babylonians had gathered the Jews because they were about to take them off into exile. And so Rachel, or the mothers of of Israel, are watching their sons bound and shackled, ready to be taken off to Babylon, and they are weeping. It's as if their their sons are dying, going away forever. They will not be comforted because they, they are no more, and they weep. But immediately after that verse in Jeremiah 31, comes these verses. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to your own country. And then a couple of verses later, in Jeremiah 31, God makes an amazing promise. And I hope you all know what that promise is. It is the promise of the new covenant. 
A covenant where God promises to not only bring back those sons to deliver Israel, but to forgive the iniquity of the people, to remember their sin no more. And so when Matthew quotes Jeremiah 31, every Jewish reader would have immediately associated that passage with the new covenant. Like it, was, it was ingrained in their minds. They understood Rachel was comforted by the promises of God. Bethlehem's mothers had wept, as Israel's mothers had wept, but God made promises of restoration, of forgiveness, of covenantal hope and joy. And Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of that promise. He is the hope of that restoration. It's Him. He will atone for the people's sins. He will deliver them from condemnation. So Matthew is saying that these mothers who weep in Bethlehem will be comforted by the Messiah who has come, the deliverer of the people, the forgiver of sins. Just as God called Moses to deliver his people from slavery, so God was calling Jesus up out of Egypt to deliver his people from the bondage to their sins. I mean, Moses delivered from slavery. The prophecies of Jeremiah find their full and ultimate fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one who delivers his people a new covenant. Now verse 19, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. When Pharaoh died in Egypt, God appeared to Moses and told him to return to his people. Now when Herod dies in Judea, God appears, or an angel appears to Joseph, says, return to your people. Herod died in 4 AD. When he died, his three sons divided his kingdom, each taking a different section of that, and Archelaus was given Judea. And he, Archelaus, was very much like his father. He was cruel. Unlike his father, he had no political smarts. He was totally inept. For instance, he began his reign in blood. He massacred some 3,000 Passover celebrants. And so it's no wonder it's not safe for Joseph, Mary, and Jesus to go back to Judea. There's a madman who's in charge. And within two years of his reign, Rome deposed him. And they put a prefect in charge instead. Let's do, do away with this king business. Let's put a Roman in charge. Eventually, a prefect named Pontius Pilate would be appointed to that role. Verse 22 implies to us that, Jesus, uh, that Joseph had even, again, another angelic dream. This time he's warned to stay away from Judea. Don't go back there. So he takes his family north. It says into Israel, that historical territory of the northern kingdom of Israel. Under Roman rule, it's called Galilee. 
Joseph and Mary, Jesus, they come to settle in the village of Nazareth, which we know from Luke is the hometown of Joseph and Mary. And Matthew then writes that this too was in fulfillment of Scripture, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. But there's a major problem with that prophecy. I challenge you, go home. Spend all week, look for that prophecy in your Old Testament. You will not find it. In fact, Nazareth didn't even exist during the Old Testament. There were no Nazarenes, nothing like that. Nothing in the Old Testament talks about the Messiah coming from a place called Nazareth. And so there is a lot of scholarly debate over what is Matthew doing? What does he mean by this? And I'm not going to enter into that debate. All I'm going to do is simply share with you what I believe is most consistent with, how Matthew's, with Matthew's method of showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. It is a specific pattern or, or method that he's using, and, and there is an answer that I find very satisfying. You see, at that time, there were these two streams of thought that existed about the Messiah, about the origins of the Messiah among the Jews, by far the most popular stream was that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Right? That's attested to when the Sanhedrin say this to Herod. But there's this other prophetic stream, a small minority view, that no one would know where the Messiah would come from. It's a prophetic stream of thought that actually turns up once in John's gospel. Speaking of Jesus, some people in Jerusalem say, we know where this man comes from. We know Jesus comes from Nazareth. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So it's appearing that Matthew is hearkening to that prophetic stream of thought, that no one will know where the Messiah comes from. So as I said, in the Old Testament, Nazareth was non-existent. In, in Jesus' day, Nazareth was culturally non-existent. Like it, it was a tiny village. It was lost to the progress and wealth of Galilee, and Galilee was a wealthy territory. And indeed, it was progressing, even moving away from conservative Judaism in, in Judea. Nazareth remained conservative, though, while the rest of the cities went on. So Nazareth was a cultural non-entity in Galilee. And we remember Nathaniel's quote. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So even in Jesus' day, Nazareth was a nowhere. It was a no place. And this perfectly fits a series of prophecies that reveal the Messiah would be unrecognizable. He would not be taken seriously. He'd be humble and lowly and a sufferer. And I don't think there's a better prophetic picture of this than what we find in Isaiah 53. Here's verses 2 and 3. He, the Messiah, had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from which men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah prophesies that when the Messiah would appear, he would be despised, he would be rejected, he would not have the expected appearance. And it follows 
it follows that Jesus' origin did not fit the expectation. It didn't look like he was supposed to look. Jesus of Nazareth is a Messiah that nobody wanted. So when Matthew writes he would be called a Nazarene, it's pejorative. It's an insult. Again, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yes. Out of Nazareth did come the Messiah. Born in Bethlehem, the better Moses, the better Israel, the deliverer of his people, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one that all Scripture and all history has been pointing to. This is what Matthew wants us to see. The interweaving of all Scripture coming together in this one man. And at his birth, only the Gentiles recognized it. That this baby was king of the Jews. And upon the cross, that, Gentile, that Roman cross, again, it was the Gentiles, the Romans, who called him king of the Jews. While Jerusalem was annoyed and indifferent towards their young Messiah and, and Jerusalem's king tried to kill him, Gentile Egypt provided a refuge. See the role the Gentiles are playing in the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus? Even though he is still a small child right here in Matthew chapter 2, we're beginning to see that Jesus is much greater than king of the Jews. We're beginning to see what Scripture has foretold, that the Gentiles will worship him. And already, right here after his birth, they're beginning to stream in towards him in, in fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah chapter 49. God says... Is it too light a thing that you, my servant, Messiah, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation shall reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by Israel, the servant of rulers, Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Right here in Matthew 2, it's happening. And from this moment forward, it will only grow. And look at us. Look at us here, Gentiles on the other side of the planet, worshiping this great king. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Your, your word. What incredible wisdom we see in it. No man could have contrived all this majesty, but only by you, only by your spirit has your word been woven in such a way, has history been guided in such a way to bring the king of all kings just the right time, in the right place, tying together all these threads of Scripture so that one day we each would look back on this and marvel. Oh, great God, we praise you. 
And Jesus, our Messiah, our King, our Lamb who was slain, to him belong all glory and honor and wealth and blessing and power and wisdom. We praise him. We praise you, Christ. Amen.